Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm not Luke, even though he said, you know, Luke in his prayer. I'm not Luke with hair. This is not what he looks like with hair. Um, just, you know, swap the beard and everything. Uh, I'm actually, my name is Evan Drayton, if I haven't gotten the chance to meet you. Uh, my wife, KJ, and I came here for the summer to be interns. We're originally from Boise, Idaho in the States. Uh, we study at Boise Bible College, and so we are learning how to be in ministry and how to study God's Word. And so, uh, but for the summer, we are here to meet you guys and get to know you guys. So if we haven't had the chance to meet you or grab coffee or lunch with you, we'd love to do that. Um, but for today, we are going to be learning about a really big part in the Gospel of Mark because we're really talking about Jesus's identity. And that's a really big deal, not just because it's a big theological deal and studying God and studying Jesus and knowing who Jesus is, but it's also a big deal in each of our personal lives as we kind of go through learning about Jesus. Like, for example, if we look through like my personal life, when I've grown up in the church, when I was really little, we, I was taught that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Who's heard that line before? We've, you know, it's kind of the, the main line that we learn as Christians that we tell people when they're like, why are you a Christian? What do you believe? Well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. It's pretty simple. But when I was very young, that's kind of all I really knew about Jesus. So he kind of gained the title Savior in, in my mind. And it's not untrue, like Jesus is our Savior as Christians. But it was really reductive because that's all I knew him as. He was just a guy who died and now I get to reap the benefits of that. And I get to go to heaven and it's just kind of a really good deal for little six-year-old Evan because I really like heaven, right? So I don't have to be afraid of death anymore. And then as I kind of got to grow up a little bit more, I also knew him as this rule keeper, right? Like as the guy who says that I can't lie to my parents, the guy who says that I can't cuss or do drugs or anything like that. And so he was this rule keeper and this judge who was looking down from heaven. But then it, that was actually what I knew Jesus as for most of my life as I, got, as I went through church. Uh, as I began to get into high school, 9th, 10th, and 11th grade, which I believe here is third year, fourth year, and fifth year, as I got into that age range, I started to actually start reading the Bible a little bit more, and I got to start reading more about Jesus, and his identity in my mind got much deeper. I got a lot more intimate, and it got bigger because I started to see who he truly was, and I got to see how he talked to people and how he showed them love, and like when he talked to them, he like saw them and he sat with them and he accepted them for who they were and he invited them into something bigger. And as I began to learn this side of Jesus, I began to see part of him as friend. I began to see him as more than just this distant savior who died a long time ago and that's somehow relevant for me today, but like this guy that I can get to know because as I started learning these things about his character and about the way that he acts to people and how he reaches out to people, I began to experience that love firsthand. And I began to feel his love and his presence as I was reading and worshiping and as I was praying and also interacting with my brothers and sisters in Christ and all these people that I had around me at my youth group. I began to see him as more than just the savior, but as a friend. And then even going on further than that, as I got into Bible college, I began to actually dig deep into the scripture and I began to read the Bible and really study it and look at how everything fits together, not just how the gospel fits into the story of the Bible, but about how the whole Bible 
is formed and pieced together in such a way that shows that Jesus is our King and our Lord, and He is God. He is a divine person who came down from heaven for us. And it began to get a whole lot bigger. And I began to learn that Jesus is my Lord and my King, and that I don't just accept this, this uh, accept Him as my Savior or accept this sacrifice that He had. And I began to see that actually... I need to be reborn, and I need to change the way I live, and I need to be stepping into new life to see him for who he is and to accept him. And as I went on this journey, as I saw him as my Lord and my King, he never stopped being my Savior. He never stopped being my friend, but I gained a better perspective of what his identity is and the role that he plays in my life as I began to go on this journey So I'd love for you guys, before we get into all of the scripture and as we dig deep into that, take a moment and think for yourself, who do you say that Jesus is? What role is he playing in your life? And if you've been a Christian for a long time or a short time, or if you're just still thinking about it, think about how that's changed for you when you were younger, either in age or in the faith, and as you've gotten to know him more. Who do you say Jesus is and what role does that play for you in your life? So at this moment, at this point of the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus do some really impressive things, some really powerful things, and it's gaining him a lot of popularity. It's gaining him to have this following and people are seeing him and people are wanting to see more of him, right? And because like right before this, we see that as Nick taught about, we saw him heal a blind man. And before that, he was feeding 4,000 people and multiplying food and showing power that way. And we've seen him cast out demons and we've seen him heal people. And he's having these big sermons that, are pe- that people are really impressed with. And like I remember when I, was, when I was in youth group, my small group was reading through the book of Mark just because we're like, we don't actually read the Bible on our own time. So we're all going to read through the book of Mark together. And as we got towards this part of the book, we, we sat down and we all talked about like how we thought about it, what we saw in the book so far. And I remember describing it as just being parable, parable, miracle, parable, miracle, miracle, just one after the other because... It's moving really fast, if you haven't noticed. This is just showing how Jesus is saying some really big things and then doing some really big things and having really big authority and power, and it's one after the other. And that's what other people are seeing, too. That's where all this popularity is coming from. So he takes his disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he says, who do you say that I am? And they answer, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say that you're Elijah, others say you are one of the prophets. Because everybody is trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is. And we have the end of the story, and we know about it, and we preach it every single Sunday. But everybody else at this point is just trying to figure it out. And so they say things like, John the Baptist. And it's because John the Baptist, he says a lot of really similar things to what Jesus says. Like, John the Baptist was just this, like, weird guy in the wilderness who ate some really weird food and, like, baptized people. But whenever people would come and hear him speak, he would say things like, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the kingdom of heaven is near, and we need to be prepared for it and ready for it. And then this Jesus guy enters the scene, and he's saying, I am actually from the kingdom of heaven. 
And I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven to you, and you can be a part of the kingdom of heaven literally today. He sounds a lot like John the Baptist, and he looks a lot like Elijah, because if you look through the story of Elijah, there was a lot of really cool miracles and works of power, like drawing fire from heaven, which I haven't seen Jesus do yet, but that'd be a pretty cool story. But he draws fire from heaven, and he multiplies oil so that he can make bread, and he resurrects a little boy from the dead. Like, Elijah shows a lot of really cool power, and Jesus is out here doing the same thing and healing people and, and casting out demons. So he looks a lot like Elijah. He sounds a lot like John the Baptist. But regardless, no matter if they're saying one of those two or someone else, Everybody can just agree on the fact that this guy is special. We can tell that this guy has power from God. This guy is from God, and he is given power from God. Like, they know at the very least he's a prophet. So if you're keeping track, we have messenger, and we have miracle worker, and we have prophet. But then Jesus asks, who do you guys say that I am? Because as I've said, everybody else, they see Jesus pop up. He does some really cool things. He says some really cool things. And he goes home. Or he retreats into the hills. And he goes and he does his own thing. But his disciples, they're not just his students. They're just not these people that he's mentoring. These are his best friends. Because they're traveling with Jesus. And walking on the road. And having these conversations with him. They make camp. And they cook with him. And they eat with him. They get to make fire and sit out late at night. Just talking about life. And looking up at the stars with Jesus. These guys have a much deeper idea of who Jesus really is than just someone who, it's like our equivalent to pulling up a YouTube video of someone and then claiming that you know who they are. But these guys, they know him. These are his friends. And Peter, who's in Jesus's inner circle, says that you are the Messiah. He steps out at everybody and they they all kind of get the idea, but he's the one to step forward. He says that he is the Messiah. And the term Messiah, depending on how long you've been in church or if you've caught those sermons, it can kind of be a confusing idea. And so essentially, when we say Jesus Christ, it's not his last name, but it's a title that he holds. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. And that when you boil it down, it just means anointed one. And it's shown more prevalently, mostly in the Old Testament, because a lot of people were anointed, and that means that they were set apart for different tasks or different roles. So we see people being anointed as a high priest, which is kind of a big deal because they are the bridge and the buffer between God and humanity and God's people, the people of Israel. And we see people being anointed as king, which is also a big deal because they are the representation of God's people of Israel, and they are trying to lead in a way that honors God and follows God's will for his people. When people are anointed, it's a big deal, and they are claiming that Jesus is another one of these anointed people. And what that specifically means for Jesus to be anointed, we'll get into that a little bit later. But right now, Jesus doesn't want them to go around spreading that. He tells them, don't don't just go around spreading that I'm the Messiah. And we'll also get into why that is in a little bit. But before that, there's another book, the Bible, that talks about this event specifically. It's Matthew. It's another one of the Gospels. And it gives a little bit more context or a little bit, it fills out the story a little bit more in a way that I think is going to be really helpful. So we're going to 
look at that a little bit. Because when, in the book of Matthew, when Peter says that Jesus is the Messiah, he adds, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Which is a big deal because kings and priests, they can be anointed, they can be a Messiah, but you are the son of the living God. He says, not only are you set apart, but you are from God. You are a part of this divine plan. And he says that you are something bigger than something that we've ever seen before. And it's after that confession that Peter makes that, that Matthew records this part right after that. He says, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, which is Peter, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So there's kind of these two different parts to it. There's the first part where it talks about Peter being a rock on which Jesus will build his church. And then there's the second part that has to do with him holding the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so as we kind of look at the first part, there's some wordplay that's going on in the original language. Sorry, not sorry, Nick, but Greek is cool. Um, but if you look at it, there's some wordplay because he's saying you are Peter, which is Petros, and on this Petra, which means rock, I will build my church. And so he's essentially calling that this moment is how Jesus is going to build his church. There's a lot of people, uh, especially of the Catholic faith, that believe that this is a moment where Jesus is giving Peter this divine um, promotion into the church or a place of leadership in the church, uh, known as the Pope, commonly known as the Pope, um, and some have some different ways of explaining it. Um, but they believe that this is where he's saying that on this rock, you are going to build this church, and he is taking this headship in God's church that Jesus is going to be building. And that also plays into the keys of the kingdom of heaven, because also in the Catholic faith and other different variations of it, the pope or a priest has the ability to excommunicate someone, which means like throwing them out of the church. And if you have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that means you're thrown out of the church. You're also thrown out of the kingdom. You're not welcome back. But as, as I've come to study this passage in my few years of Bible college, and as I've just kind of prepared for the sermon, looked at different books, looked at different interpretations of it, I don't think that that Jesus is setting Peter apart for this specific role in the church that is to come forever and be a pope that is going to be handed down uh, to the next pope after the next one. But I believe that it is because Peter is stepping out with faith and with courage to say Jesus is the Messiah that Peter or that Jesus is now foreshadowing that Peter has a big role to play in the church. And if we look forward into the early church, even into the book of Acts and further from there, we're going to see that Peter does play a really big part in the early church. Not only is he in Jesus's inner circle, but even when Jesus ascends back into heaven, he's going to preach a sermon that is going to have a few thousand people baptized like that. And he's going to be on the ground floor building up the church. Like he is saying, you are on, on this rock. I am going to be building my church. And we can see that clearly because, because Peter is willing to step out with courage 
and in faith that he is the Messiah. And I think that that shows something for us to take after if we're Christians and if we're following this faith, then we want to have faith like Peter, to step out of whatever group we're in and be able to say with confidence and with faith and courage that Jesus is the Messiah. It's not that we have to look up to Peter and hope that one day we can be him. It's that we're going to take after Peter and walk in his footsteps so that Jesus will also use us for big things in the church, whatever that looks like. And it's not this unattainable goal because he's this apostle and he was a saint, and, but we're, we're going to see that this is one of Peter's big successes, but we also see a lot of Peter's failures, and that makes him human, and that makes him someone that we can relate to, someone that we can learn from, both on the good side and the bad side of that. And we, we saw one of Peter's failures right after this, because as soon as Jesus rewards Peter and says that he is this rock, he says, then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. And that is a huge change of the mood of this whole group. Because all of a sudden, Peter is like the guy that Jesus just praised. And everybody's probably jealous of him in this moment. And then Peter thinks he's doing the right thing, saying, No, I'm never going to let anything bad happen to you. You're the Messiah. We're going to keep you safe. And Jesus calls him Satan, which is probably the very worst thing that he could be called in this moment to just take him from like being on cloud nine to just being a dog with its tail between its legs, probably wanting to disappear. But you can't really blame him too much because we have the end of the story and he didn't. Because the truth is that Jesus' identity is of the Messiah and this Messiah that they've been expecting since the very first pages of the Bible, but he's the Messiah that turns out to be unexpected. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus is the Messiah, but he is the Messiah in a pagan land. At the very first part of the passage today, we see that Jesus takes his disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And that's just a town that's right outside of Jewish territory. So it's in a non-Jewish territory. And it's a pagan land that worships many gods, but specifically the god called Pan. It's a Greek god. And so that he steps into this different land, this different town, and he is the Messiah of a monotheistic deity here to save mankind from these sins. And that is not really something that people in Caesarea Philippi are probably going to be interested in, because all they really care about is giving the right sacrifices to the right God, and they choose that depending on how they want their life to go, if they want to have a kid, if they want to have good crops, that kind of thing. So he steps into this pagan land and says that he is the one true Messiah of the one living God. That's not something they're interested in. And if you zoom out a little bit more, we'll also see that they're in a land that is filled with Romans. Rome is oppressing and Rome has taken over this land. And Rome, for one, is also polytheistic. They have all their gods that they believe in. But most importantly and most directly, they worship Caesar as a god. 
They worship the guy who runs Rome. And they, don't also, they also don't care about any of this Jewish mumbo-jumbo, talking about a Messiah, talking about saving humanity from its sins. And that begs the question, who do people in our world worship? Who or what are people today worshiping? I'm not like, I don't watch the news every day. I'm not that kind of guy. But I do, I do go on social media and I do see what all my friends are talking about, especially my friends that aren't Christians. And the way that I see it is that people in our world are worshiping pleasure and freedoms and they're just grasping at more and more freedoms and more and more pleasures that aren't from God. And so when they're done with that freedom, they end up feeling more trapped than they did in the first place. And when they finally got that pleasure, it wears off and they're still stuck needing more and more. Because our world is a pagan land that is worshiping false freedoms and pleasures. What's important, though, is that Jesus is the true Messiah, son of the true living God. And in pagan lands, Jesus is still the Messiah. And that is what Peter got right. But what Peter got wrong was about Jesus' future. Because Jesus is the Messiah with an unexpected future. Because Jews at the time, they were of the belief that this Messiah was going to show up onto the scene and they were going to become this political leader that overthrows Rome and that frees God's people from the Roman oppressors. Not in the way that we say that God frees us from our sins. Like it's not a spiritual thing. It's like a literal, he's going to raise up an army and there's going to be a bloodbath. But in the end, Israel will reign and Jesus will take on his earthly throne to rule over his people. And that's what they were expecting. That's what they wanted. And the Romans, they didn't believe any of that Jewish mumbo jumbo. When they looked at Jesus, they didn't see a political leader they saw this religious activist, and they'd seen others like him. They saw John the Baptist preaching about the kingdom of heaven. They've seen other people show up, and all they know is that this guy has a bit of a following, and if it gains to be too much and they don't really like it, they're just going to squash him like they do the rest of them. He's nothing to worry about. We don't believe in this God. We don't believe in this Messiah. But both parties are wrong here because Jesus isn't a political leader. He's not trying to raise up an army. And he's also not just some political activist. He's God incarnate. And our world doesn't get that either. I mean, obviously, many, of our, many people in our world don't share our faith. There's different religions. There are people that are just spiritual and they believe in these different things. But even Jesus describes some of his followers as lukewarm. And what I mean by that is that there's some people in the church that are saying that Jesus is Lord of some of their life. Or they think that Jesus is king of a kingdom that they really like to go to in their free time. Maybe they have a house there and they like to holiday there, right? Or Jesus is their friend that they call when they're moving because he owns a van and it'll be like way easier that way, right? And I don't think that this is something that we can really look down on people for because it's a mindset that we all get into at times. It just shows itself differently in different parts of our lives. But whether you follow Jesus until the way that you act at work or you're going to follow Jesus and obey him until it makes you go outside of your comfort zone, 
or you pray all the time when life is a little bit tricky or when you need something, but when life is going well, it just kind of slips your mind. It's these moments that we need to keep ourselves accountable of how we're following Jesus, and we need to ask ourselves, is Jesus your Messiah, or are you confining him to your schedule and to your comfort zone? But the reason that Peter was wrong about Jesus' future is because he didn't have God's concerns in mind. He was wanting his friend, Jesus, his teacher, to have a long, fruitful life, and he wanted him to fulfill the plan that he had been told was the plan all along. But Jesus, he's the Messiah with God's concerns in mind. Following the story, we see that Jesus, following God's concerns, is going to go to the cross, and that Jesus being nailed in our place is going to allow all people for all time the ability to accept eternal salvation through that sacrifice. And that is a whole lot bigger of a concern than Peter could have ever had. Because God's concerns for Jesus' messiahship is infinitely bigger than what man was concerned with. But now that all of that's done and we know the end of the story, how do we have God's concerns in mind? How do we adopt God's concerns as our own? And for that, I'm going to pull in another verse from the book of Matthew. It's in Matthew 22. And there's this moment when the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus and they ask him, what is the most important law, the most important commandment in the law of Moses, which is just the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament. And Jesus says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the prophets, the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The whole story of the Bible is about God's restoration of humanity to himself. This reconciliation after humanity has rebelled, after humanity runs away, God is trying to make things right and reconcile humanity back to being in union with him. And so if that's what God's mission is, if that's what God's concerned about, naturally, the things that he writes down are going to be prevalent to that mission. And so we see that the biggest commandment, the most important commandment, with God's concern being bringing humanity back to himself, is loving God with literally all that you are. And it means asking ourselves the question, do you love God? Do you truly love him? Do you long for him? Do you want him to be in your heart? Do you want to feel his presence? And do you want him to guide you through life and give up control of the steering wheel so that he can take control and show you what he has for you? Do you allow that love to change the way that you act, to change who you're going to interact with, how you're going to interact with these people, all the people that you come across in your day? Are you thinking about God's word? Are you intentionally studying it? Are you just mulling it over in your head and digesting it and thinking about it throughout your day? And honestly, I'd say that if we're going to love God completely with all that we are, I don't think any of us are there. But I think the important part is making that our goal. Making that what we want 
the kind of disciple that we are, being loving God with all that we are. And then Jesus says that the second most important law that's equally as important is loving others selflessly, loving others as ourself. So that means asking ourselves a question, do we allow ourselves to hold grudges? When we see some people, do we see them or do we see through them? Are we allowing ourselves to, for whatever reason, see people as inferior? They're not as smart. They don't have my faith. I'm better than them. It's my job to come and take them under my wing and show them this. Are you allowing yourself to be bitter towards people, to be mad, or to think that you're better than them? Or are you allowing yourself to see that they are also a child of God, and they also deserve this salvation because Jesus says that they do. And the last, the last thing that I think we need to focus on when it comes to adopting God's concerns for ourselves is that we need to understand that God's concerns is found in the Bible. If that's what his mission is, if that's what he's concerned about, then we need to make it our mission in life to know God well and to adopt those concerns, the why and the how and the successes and the failures and the whole story of how God is involved in our lives, that's found in our Bible. That's found in his word. And so when we're adopting his concerns, we need to understand and begin this process of making ourselves concerned about his word of obeying it and allowing it to change the way that we act, even though some of it's confusing and some of it's kind of weird, putting our best foot forward and understanding it and asking questions and sharing it with others because that's what God is concerned about. He's revealed himself through the words that we find in our Bibles. It takes a lot of personal time with Jesus and in prayer and in scripture for us to get this bigger image of his identity. And throughout our lives, we're always going to find these different identities that Jesus takes on in our lives. So as, as KJ and I were heading here and we were trying to raise funds for that, we found Jesus's identity to be really prevalently provider. And I found that Jesus has been a peacemaker and Jesus has been a comforter. And sometimes Jesus just takes a sledgehammer to the bad parts of your life and to your pride. And so sometimes just Jesus is this demolition guy, right? But in different parts of your life and in different seasons of your life, Jesus takes on different roles. And it's when we understand those and when we take the time to really process that, that we see a greater idea of Jesus's identity. And this is also going to happen in the book of Mark as we continue to go through. Think of this passage as kind of the hinge of the book. Because there was before this and there's after this. And before this, we've seen that Jesus is this mighty Messiah who, I, like I said, does all these crazy things, does all these powerful things, and shows these amazing miracles and this unstoppable power. But going on from here, as we see that Jesus is the Messiah, he's going to show us what that really means. And for right now, it means that from now on, he's going to be a suffering Messiah. And it doesn't mean he stops being powerful. It doesn't mean that he stops being unstoppable. It means that now we're going to see Jesus suffer. And we're going to see how Jesus is rejected. And we're going to see that Jesus is going to be treated unjustly. 
But honestly, if you remember nothing else from this sermon, remember this, that through all the expectations that Jesus had, all the different people he interacted with, whether he was meeting people or walking on water or healing people or casting out demons or being rejected or being spat on, no matter who he was with or what he was doing, Jesus was always the Messiah and he's always going to be the Messiah. No matter how, how Peter answered who do you say I am? No matter what he would have said, Jesus was always going to be the Messiah. So ask yourself, what are your expectations for Jesus? What role is he playing in your life? And are you expecting him to fit into your schedule and your comfort zone and into the way that you want to interact with people? His identity remains the same despite your understanding. Because Jesus is the Messiah in our context, but on his terms. That's what we need to understand. I would encourage all of us in this room, if we call ourselves Christians, to make this a habit of in our lives asking ourselves, what are our expectations for Jesus? What role are we allowing him to play in our lives? And we need to check ourselves whenever we're not really offering for him to be the Lord of our life, whenever we're not offering for him to be the Messiah on his own terms. And we need to allow him to act freely in our life because we know that that's what's best. And if you're not fully a Christian in here, or you're, you, know, you have one foot in, you're not so sure, or if you're just figuring all this out, I want you to know that Jesus isn't just this mean, stubborn, harsh parent who just doesn't listen to us. He is a loving and strong and unchanging, powerful king of a perfect kingdom. And that's not something to be, uh, to be scared of. That's not something that we need to be skeptical of. It's actually something that we take solace in. Because while the rest of our world is on this sliding scale trying to figure out what is true and what is good and who do we trust and what is fulfilling and how do we go through life, while that's always changing, we sit in the middle of it on a solid foundation knowing that Jesus offers us peace because he's already told us what is true. He is good. He is the embodiment of love. And he cannot disown his children. And he is faithful to us while we are unfaithful. That's the gospel. And that's why we show up every single Sunday. That's what we do. That's how we put this into action is show up every Sunday and start to learn more about who Jesus is and follow the story and ask how that applies to us and study Jesus in your own time. Join a midweek community group as we study the Bible together and have these open conversations asking questions. And we need to understand through our entire life that together we are walking into a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. But we know for the, with complete certainty that Jesus is the Messiah. And that Messiah died on the cross for our sins. And that was kind of a big deal. That's kind of the biggest deal that we can talk about here, right? So every week we take communion because when we take the juice and when we take the cracker, we are joining into that story that Jesus is a part of. We're joining into it. And allowing ourselves to be changed. And we're, when we do that, we're saying, Jesus, 
I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to be the Messiah in my life on your terms. And so we're more than just accepting salvation. We're accepting an invitation into the kingdom. And when we look at our Bible and grand's, or God's grand story of the reconciliation of his people, we partake in communion or the Lord's Supper because we are entering into that same story.